0: i'm heather after many wasted years trying outdated approaches to my daughter's addiction that felt wrong to me harmed our relationship and didn't help my daughter i finally found an effective evidence-based approach that repaired my relationship with her helped me create my own peace of mind and made me an ally in my daughter's recovery i teach you a loving and compassionate approach to help you encourage change and create connection. Addiction impacts the entire family system. Family recovery is the answer. Hi Amanda, thank you for being here today to share your story. Thank you for having me. Let's start with you giving a little bit of your background and the kind of work you do and how you got into it before we get into talking about our topic today.
1: Yes, amazing. I would love to. So, I guess my background is I actually, my 15-year-old self, decided I wanted to be an accountant. So I then got busy pursuing that career path, went to university, did all that stuff, and originally from New Zealand. So I traveled overseas, lived in London for almost 10 years, and then moved to Australia. So met Lots of amazing people in that time and had an amazing experience and did my accounting thing and got to Sydney and I met my husband in Sydney. So that was wonderful. I was thrilled and yeah, an amazing guy. And we just connected straight away and it was wonderful. We then went and did the things, had kids, married, and all of that stuff. And It was great. I was so happy. And there was always like some niggly feelings in the background of something's not quite right, couldn't put my finger on it. And then the little nigglies became something a bit more. And then it was apparent that there was a problem with what I then knew to be alcohol and then later gambling and just got in stuck, you know, just so stuck. And that time was just stuck for many years, and eventually sought some support for myself, which was hard and not overly accessible with two young kids. And kind of came through that many years, and then we'll get into that. And then I decided that I wanted to go back and help people and create some support that I would have absolutely loved at the time when I was in the thick of it myself. So that's what I did. I started an online support group and then I was like, this is not enough. So I went and did the coaching thing and probably 18 months ago started coaching women who have been impacted by a loved one's addiction. So now I'm an addiction relationship coach and I support women to get back to living and give them the tools to navigate the tricky stuff and help them get back to themselves. So yeah, that's kind of where I got to.
0: I love that. It's funny. I used to be an accountant too. So (laughs) my goodness, (laughs) (laughs) that was my career before I did the same thing. I thought the exact same thing of when I was looking for help, it wasn't available. And when I finally did find all the tools, I thought I'm just going to go out and create what I needed when I was looking Mm. for it. So the kind of the same thought process. Yeah. Yeah. So let's start by talking about stigma and how stigma has influenced your journey and like how it affected your experience of your husband's addiction.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. And, you know, you and I have spoken about this a lot from our different perspectives and the stigma of addiction prevents you from firstly, like seeking support for yourself and, you know, the stigma and the shame and completely isolates you. for fear of judgment, fear of people not understanding and just how have I got here in yourself and created, I guess, I became a shell of myself. I was navigating this completely crazy, chaotic situation that I didn't understand. I had no understanding of this. Had no prior experience of this. It wasn't in my world. And I just didn't know what to do. And the stigma of addiction, because addiction, yuck. And I don't know what you think, but I, it's that strong sense of this is a moral failing. Mm -hmm. Addiction is a moral failing. And when there's that message out there, you feel that so deeply that this is a moral issue. How could someone do this? And so that it stops, I guess, both all people from seeking support for themselves or reaching out for connection, like the person struggling themselves and the loved ones. We're all just behind closed doors trying to navigate something that is so hard mm. and we don't have the tools. So then, We just do our best with what we've got and often that the things that we think are going to help don't help. So the stigma stops us from seeking support. It stops us from reaching out and not even to professionals in the first instance, but even to people in our circle, our loved ones, our people. The stigma stops you from reaching out to those people because It's hard and people don't understand and that's okay but when people don't understand they offer words and advice that is often not helpful and then there's more shame that you didn't then follow the unhelpful advice they gave you and then you feel like you can't speak about it anymore. So I feel like the stigma is very multifaceted in that aspect. You don't reach out for support to professionals. And even I think sometimes there's limited understanding even in that space, of what the reality of living with this is is not textbook stuff. We are living in it twenty four seven, and it is so hard. And so I think this really has stopped you from seeking support. And because you don't have support, you just are doing your best, it's not helpful, sometimes it's harmful actually to your loved one and to yourself and you start responding in crazy ways to crazy situations and in crisis because you just don't have the tools and you don't have the people around you saying we've got you you know and any other kind of personal crisis health medical situational thing usually people will wrap their arms around you In that, you know, that village community. We've got you, we're here for you. Anything you need, you get meals, you get people coming over, helping you. If you have kids, you have co-workers checking in on you, but stigma stops you firstly in yourself reaching out for that support. And then when you do, it's hit or miss. So there's the risk of the people that you do reach out to, are they going to understand? And then sometimes, what I have experienced is people get bored. So when you do reach out, there's sometimes a lot of care initially and compassion and understanding. But then, as time goes by and it's still a thing, it's, "Ah, oh, is that not solved yet? You know, is that still a thing for you? like is that are they not better yet?" And it's ah. Oh. And so that's like, okay, now I kind of mention it now again. And I think the stigma, and you know, we're going to, we are going to get into values, but the stigma, it's hard to sit in that stigma and stay in line with your values because the stigma of someone having slip-ups along the way, it's hard to be honest about that because we know that's the reality. This is a hard thing. And whatever you're trying to work towards, people don't understand. And so the stigma, it's hard to stay in line with your value system with stigma and addiction. So, but I think this really, in the first instance, it stops people from getting the necessary support that they need.
0: Yeah. There's just so much you said in there that I want to comment on. But I think the slip ups, especially, right? If they have a reoccurrence of use and there's this, We want them to be honest with us, but we create an environment that's impossible for them to be honest with us about what they're experiencing, about if they are even thinking about using or having cravings or something like that, that if we haven't done the work on ourselves, then we don't have the emotional capacity to hear that and manage Mm. our feelings about it without shaming and stigmatizing them more. Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. And I think for myself,
1: and if I rewind, you know, five years, six years, a reoccurrence or a slip up was the worst thing imaginable in my mind because that's what I had heard. That's what you hear. Once you decide to not do something, just simply not do it. And if you do slip up, that's the worst thing. So then family members and partners, well, that's the worst thing then oh my gosh, this is the worst, and it's not, and I wish I knew that now, and we respond, or rather react in a way that tells our person, it tells us, that's the worst thing that could have ever happened, you know, and we react in a way, and then our behavior follows through, and it is not the worst thing, but a lot of people, society, that is, how could you And there's so much shame in that. And it doesn't invoke honesty. And we haven't made it a safe place previously. Definitely, you and I definitely have in our journey. But we want the truth. We want to help you. And the truth to be a safe place. But if we don't make the truth a safe place in ourselves, we're not welcoming that.
0: Yeah, and... When you mentioned that a slip up is the worst thing that could happen when you have that belief system, what goes along with that is nothing that I'm doing is working, Mm. right? That everything is a failure. Everything is wrong. Instead of seeing, okay, we've done great and we got this far. And so things obviously are working if we've made it this far, right? And having different standards of measurement for success, like kindness and compassion and connection and all these other things that we could choose that are right for our family and situation, then we can all experience some success and creating like good feelings for ourselves in this horrible situation.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think we always are immediately drawn to the shortcomings, the downside, the negative, and often I think our mind just does a hop, skip, and a jump to the worst-case scenario and catastrophizing. And a slip-up or a recurrence is not a catastrophe in itself, but our mind goes there, and you know, and then we're driven by fear, and then it's all the worries, and then we are, well, I better behave in a crazy way to alight them to the fact that. This is not okay. And just the actions and behaviors just driven out of fear. And it's if we can give ourselves the tools to navigate those situations in a healthier way for everybody, that's when we get better outcomes. That's when we get people knowing I have done really well. What went on here? What do I need to do differently? What didn't quite work out that time? Let's go again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I had that abstinence-only belief system. Like, there Mm. was one way to recovery, which was going to treatment, and that the only recovery there was was complete abstinence forever. Mm -hmm. And that was the stigma influencing my belief system. And really, like you had said earlier, my belief system included that it was a moral issue and that there was a part of me that actually believed, really entertained the whole idea of choice, which I don't mm. anymore. And it really affected my, the way I showed up as a mom. And because of my belief system that I had done something wrong, right, that stigma says this can be controlled and Mm. I should be able to fix it or change it, or I did something wrong, or this wouldn't have ever happened. Like I should have been some kind of different or better parent so that my daughter wouldn't struggle in this way. And it really, not only is such a separator on like a grand scale, not just like from us and our loved one, but like you mentioned from us and people we work with, our friends, it just leads to so much isolation when when we Mm -hmm. really all just need connection and keeps us from going out and getting help. I can remember just being so... I didn't tell anybody for Mm -hmm. a long time because of my beliefs about it. I kept it a secret. And it was like just this feeling of shame, which we're going to talk about more when I finally did admit what was happening in my life. But it opened up so many doors for healing and for people to share their experiences with me that they were hiding. Mm. So it just opened all of these doors for me. But that stigma just keeping us so isolated and alone and the shame that it causes, I think that that in itself to me And I, you know, I've experienced it more after my daughter passed away. Like the most stigma that I have experienced, honestly, in this whole situation was from the police when they called to tell me that my daughter passed away. And then in subsequent conversations Mm. about if they were doing anything to find out what had happened. And it really like just goes to show the lack of understanding and the lack of education just across the board and it then I go back to having compassion for myself that of course I had this belief system and of course when you're constantly getting this input from everybody around you the professionals you go to Mm -hmm. for help and like on tv shows it's just this constant input about stigma, it's going to affect your beliefs. Like I I know that I'm still affected by it today. Mm. I catch it earlier. I still work on it and I have to work through like my thought process. Like if this was Helena, how would I be thinking about this? Mm. But it's because it's just a lifetime of conditioning. It's not just going to go away overnight.
1: Oh my gosh. Yes. So true. And it is, you do have to catch yourself and it is all corners of society and it is such a wide held belief system on like addiction itself but then the abstinence being the only road and if someone doesn't do that there's so much well that's not recovery and the stigma that we face as well in that and yeah I'm so sorry that you had that stigma at such a terrible time in your life right that's When you want people to wrap their arms around you to catch you, not to put you into that spiral of shame, and it just highlights that there is a big gap. Yeah. And you and I have spoken about it as well. We are all just people. We are just people. And I know myself, if I rewind eight years, whatever, if I saw someone in a bad way on my way to work and I can see someone's drinking and I I would be ooh, I thought so poorly of that person and it makes me upset at myself that I had that judgment in me Mm -hmm. and almost feel like crying now like I did look at that person with judgment how could you get there and and when you see people not in a good way, when you're out and about and, oh God, not, got no self-control and all of that. And then now, more recently in the last kind of five, six years, that's someone's brother, that's someone's daughter, that's someone's mum, that's someone's person. How did they get there? And how has that, per- and like leading with compassion, leading with curiosity and We've spoken about it. No one is immune from this. It is not too many things that need to happen in your life for you to find yourself in a bad situation. And you can go either way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And a lot of what I think and where I experience stigma and shame in myself, like, oh, I don't want to catch addiction. <laughs> and not hang around those people that have that addiction thing. I don't want to be hatching that. And when no one is immune, this does not discriminate. Addiction does not care if you went to private school, public school, if you grew up on this side of the street, that side of the street, if your parents were together, not together, if you grew up in community housing or the best suburb in the city. Like, it doesn't care. And if we can just get back to people, 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 these are our people, and lead with that and be understanding and be compassionate and then with the other tools we can put in place so that we keep ourselves safe physically, mentally, emotionally along the way, lead with people.
0: Yeah. I'm not even going to add anything to that because I think you covered it all. That's exactly how I feel. <laughs> and I think that what you're saying is really beautiful, that just getting down to the common humanity of what we're all going through and just that it really could be us at any time. That's mm-hmm. become really just so obvious to me. Let's talk about shame now. So stigma leads to shame. I mean, that those stigmatized beliefs that are in our society. So how did you experience shame as a result of being in a marriage with somebody who's struggling with addiction?
1: So in many ways. It's the exclusion, I think. Exclusion of being invited to things. I have felt my children have been excluded from things. And I hadn't really experienced that until more recently, actually as I've been more public. Mm. (laughs) And I think when you keep the facade, people are more comfortable with you pretending things are a certain way, despite the reality being completely different, than you being honest and open with obviously some filters. People are more comfortable with pretending. People are more comfortable when you've got the mask on of everything's okay, la 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 la, But when you kind of get honest, it's like, oh, that's not so great. And so just excluded, I think, is the big one, the disconnection. And not everyone, and obviously myself included, we've all gone through our own periods of denial and we would rather have the pretense of what it looks like if things could be good and pretend that way. But yeah, exclusion. I think is the biggest thing. And that's hard, right? Because as you had already said, we are humans. We are built, we need connection. We want to be accepted by the pack. You know, going back to when the primal days of you had to be included in your pack, otherwise you would die. You had to be, to be excluded was literally a case of life or death. So now we still want to be included. We want to be accepted into our circles, into our community. And to be honest about something that's going on that people don't really understand and they think is a moral failing brings up a lot of exclusion. And it really highlights who your people are, which is brutal when you're going through a very tough time and then you've like got the, uh, oh, they're not my people. I thought they were turns out they're not situation and that is hard but and when we go into our values shame keeps you from I think living true to your values it to come up against shame sometimes daily and to admit there's tough stuff going on it's not great is that constant battle with being authentic and connecting with people and that authentic way, as opposed to what we may have done in the past with our mask on, everything's fine, it's all good, pretending. Um, But yeah, for me, definitely shame, isolation.
0: Yeah. I was just thinking about when you were talking about everybody being more comfortable with basically a lie than the truth. I have been very aware over the last couple of years as I've gone through like just this barrage of Dealing with divorce, then breast cancer, then my daughter passing away. Like, and all of these things are uncomfortable for not mm. divorce, not quite so much, but breast cancer, dealing with a child loss, like I mean, I it's uncomfortable for me. I don't even know how to help other people after I've been through it, right? But I just decided at some point, like I wasn't gonna absorb all the discomfort for everybody. This is my experience and what I'm going through. And I'm not going to make it so that I'm the one comforting everybody all the Mm. time. And I'm going to be really honest about how I feel Mm. like that this is hard and that it sucks. And I'm not going to, like, if I am feeling really, really bad, then I'm just going to be honest about that. And if it pushes people away, then those aren't my people. Now that is not how I started this journey, right? I was doing the same thing. I, like I said, I was ashamed. I kept it to myself. Nobody at work knew what I was going through. Very few family members. I think that honestly, I I wasn't even like allowing myself to see the full truth of it because mm. if this is... Part of it was like, if I see it, then what am I gonna do? Because I don't know what to do about it. I don't have any way to help her. And so then I was keeping everything quiet. But I think like since I've just opened this door of sharing my whole life with the world, that going through this process, I was like, all right, I'm just I'm gonna be honest about everything going forward or as much as possible. Like I don't have to Mm. tell the world everything, but I don't think that I'm helping anybody or helping change that situation if I'm not totally honest about what I'm experiencing. Because then, if I act like I'm okay, and then that parent person experiences something like that, they're going to think something's wrong with them because they're not okay, or they're not going to be able to support somebody else who's going through it because they think that they should be okay, like I lied and said I was. So, I think that just if we would all just be more honest with each other it. it would make
1: it so much easier oh my gosh imagine so beautiful and then what you just said reminded me of some thoughts that i had years ago and my loved one's addiction had me on my knees like beside myself i did not know what to do and you it's that complete disempowerment and you've got someone who is not well in themselves behaving in ways that are unusual and not who you know them to be. And it's such a declining situation. Just goes from being a bit, oh, something's not quite right here, a bit weird. There's some things I don't really know. And over time, if they keep going on that road, it's, it can get so terrible. And when you're in isolation and feel the shame and don't know what to do, you are on your knees and you're. The thoughts that went through my head were like, I, you know, like blaming myself. And I must be the only person. Like I knew not rationally I was, but I don't think I had a full comprehension of how prevalent this was because no one speaks about it. And the whole not me, this is not happening to my family. This this is not what I signed up for. Like, absolutely not. But I was on my knees and I just so much like on oh, it's just me. There's a few other people maybe. But now, obviously, you and I both know, there are loads of other mothers out there, other fathers who are on their knees with their children and struggling with their children. And I know there are loads of millions, there's millions of partners, wives, girlfriends, fiancés, husbands on their knees with this. At home, behind closed doors, just at a loss, struggling, and what you said before around the how the shame plays out and co-workers and support, and I just had this flashback of the first time my husband went to rehab, and that's probably a conversation for another time. But I was so grateful, relieved, elated that yay, we had finally got here, and obviously it was not the magic sauce that we were all hoping for, Um, that's another conversation. However, it was just this surreal day in my life where husband was in the passenger seat, two little people on the back, dropped one person, dropped the little people off at daycare. We drove to the city, dropped my husband off at his rehab hospital. I parked the car, went to work. And I was just like, what the hell? And just got to work, sat at my desk, and was just couldn't didn't say anything to anyone and I had been and I'd started detox the detox process has started at home which was horrible and probably one of the worst experiences that I've lived through and I would like I've just had the one of the worst two days of my life in this detox process and then I've just done this dropping the kids at daycare Husband to rehab, and here I am at my desk, about to do my accounting things. And it's like all I, I just needed some support mm-hmm. to be
0: able to speak my truth,
1: and I couldn't.
0: I'm just having this <laughs> a memory that makes me emotional to think about. sitting at my desk one day, I had my hat, my door was shut, but I didn't know what else to do other than to go to work. My daughter, was in a behavior health hospital for probably the third or fourth time. Yeah. And like, there was nothing else to do but go to work and Mm -hmm. sit there with my door shut and cry while I worked. Like, and there's, you were doing it while I was doing it. You know what I, and there's that opportunity for support there that's missed if you don't share what's going Mm -hmm. on in your life. And I could just, and I've dropped my daughter off at rehab so many times, not so many times enough. And it is hard. Like you'd think it's going to be this wonderful, joyous moment, Mm. but it just, it's just another level of fear and brings up all these other things now. And then for me, you know, getting her there, there's the, all the use along the way and the fear of what's going to happen. Are they really going to get out of the car? I mean, it's just such a hard experience. And then just, it just goes to show how we get in this mode of trying to make it through life and carry on and do these everyday things mm. while the most abnormal un everyday things are happening in our lives. Oh my goodness. Yes. And I think We
1: have so many moments like that along the way. And on this particular drive to rehab, we'd stopped at the coffee shop along the way. And my husband had got out to get the coffees and he was taking a long time. And the thought that went through my head was, he's done a runner. He's gone into the coffee shop and gone out the back door. He hadn't. But that was my, "Is is he coming back? You know, like, what do we do here? And... That was just the crazy thoughts that go on in your mind and it is an opportunity for support and going through the everyday stuff whilst navigating this, I don't even know what you call it because it's just so ongoing, but it's so hard and just having the pretense of everyday life without that authenticity. And I remember taking my children to birthday parties, not knowing where my husband was and having to turn up in that way and people would ask how is how is everybody how is and I'm like oh good obviously a kid's birthday party is not the moment to uh lay that out but just but I wouldn't have anyway Mm -hmm. and just having to carry on with life and I was sharing with someone else recently about how numb I became in myself. And this is what I think is the unknown, how much this impacts the loved ones, how much this impacts our well-being, our health, and our ability to show up, live life, do the things. And I remember having little, little people and being in a playground and just being completely numb. I was going through the motions of what I needed to do to take them, feed them, bathe them, play. But I was so numb. Hard to be at a playground with little people and be fully embodied in the moment and present when your person is in such a bad way. And you don't know what that day is going to bring, what that night is going to bring. And I think We need to speak more about this so that people feel more seen and they know they're not alone.
0: Yeah. And have compassion for ourselves for how hard Mm. this is that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I hadn't thought of that memory in a long time, obviously it's like emotional still. And that, you know, I'm just sitting here having compassion for myself for this Mm. experience but that's a learned skill, right? I'm sure it's a skill that you've had to learn as well. But I want to talk about the other side of stigma for just a minute because I think that's important too, is like once I got over my or shame, once I got over my shame and released a lot of the stigmatized beliefs, which is an ongoing process. But I started really setting the tone for how people saw us. Mm. and how people saw my daughter. I changed how I talked about her. I talked Mm -hmm. about her respectfully and about the good things about her. And I stopped focusing on all of the things that I wanted to change about her and went back to loving her unconditionally and thinking she was amazing, just like I had before. And like, Instead of feeling that sense of shame that I felt like every time we went to a counselor or we're in court or wherever it was, it was like, I'm going to walk in here with my head held high because I'm the mother of this amazing human and I'm just doing the best job that I can. And so is she. And this right now is her best, which isn't that Mm. great. And like, even when we would go to the doctor, I would, to me, bring an energy into the room that brought respect from the people that were there to help and support us. 99% of the time, there's probably only one experience I can think of where I felt disrespected in a hospital setting. And it wasn't actually too bad. So and I think that I just wanted to felt the need to throw that in there that we can set the tone for how we experience everything and for how the people around us experience us and our circumstance. And that gives us a lot more power and it changes the perception of everybody around us. Truly. And
1: it's up to us. And if people are listening and they're like, that feels impossible, you can get there. And it's challenging your own thoughts, challenging the way you think about things and asking yourself, how does this sit with me? And how does this sit with me? And you and I have spoken about it. I've been sat at a dinner table before and someone was talking about another family and they referred to this other person as this person's druggy daughter. And my whole body just could have been sick. And I said, and I spoke up and I said, Do you just mean their daughter? And then inserted her name. That's what we can do, not only for ourselves, but for other people. And when people are throwing judgment and shame and stigma at people who they don't even know. Oh, did you see how she was showing up at the school party the other night? Or why don't you lead with compassion? Why don't you lead with curiosity? Go and check in on that person. And it's not to say that they might come be honest and say, yeah, I'm struggling. I'm navigating this hard thing at work or my kids or whatever it is. And this is what I'm doing. You know, not to say that that's going to happen, but throw it out there throw out human get into humanity and throw people some lifelines. It could you could be the one if you lead with curiosity and you lead with compassion and you lead with humanity and you see someone who is not in a good way, instead of judging them, instead of stigmatizing their behavior, check in, ask how they are. Do they need anything? And you might be the person that helps them take that first step to ask for help or to you might be that first step for that person but when we throw out shame and stigma and all that judgment all we're doing is further pushing people away from seeking support
0: yeah yes amen to all that So I think this is a great segue into values, right? Because I think that that was underlying what we both just talked about, the values that we've tuned into in this process. And for me, tuned out of at some points as well. But like, when did values come into play for you? And like, how did you identify them as part of your recovery process?
1: I think for me, values were just so wishy-washy and a blur in the background and at the start I always thought I was an honest person and I thought the best of people and I did have some underlying values but I wasn't really in tune or aligned to them and then when navigating someone else's problematic behavior you as a result of the crazy-making, chaotic crisis situation and without any better tools and strategies, you do find yourself behaving in some unusual ways and reacting and find yourself in the crazy. And so it was, I guess, my own behavior at some point. I was like, this is not who I am the snooping, the invading someone's privacy, looking in someone's phone, searching around the house for evidence, yelling, screaming, name calling, shaming, and manipulating, threatening behavior from myself. If you don't do this, I'm going to do this or all of that stuff. And that to me was like, oh, and again, with the slow decline, I didn't didn't go from being okay to all of a sudden I'm doing all of this stuff it was just well if I find the evidence to support what I know to be true and I bring this to my person and I show them that hey I know this is what's going on can you see this is a problem now look at all this evidence I've got you know like you're preparing for some kind of court presentation of I've got my video I've got my images I've got my data here to present my PowerPoint presentation like can you see there's a problem now? Like you just go crazy. And it was that, I think, escalation of that situation in myself that I thought, this is not how I am. Who am I? Who is Amanda? And I wanted to be integrity, honesty, authenticity, and have stability, security, health, family, all of those things, relationships. And I was not living in line with any of that. So what did I need to do? And I think we've spoken about this before. There's no blueprint here. There's no do this step and then do this step and then you will be well, your person is well. And yay, we get to the finish line. It's like, so I did this and I encourage others to do this too. If you get clear on your values, who are you? What is your identity? Let that be your North Star. Let that be your true north and that guides your behavior. Is someone with integrity, do they yell at people? Do they shame people? Do they manipulate, control? No. Do they go snooping around someone's belongings and their backpacks into their emails? No, they don't. And as someone who is honest and wants to live authentically, lie to people, they don't. They do their best to show up as themselves as much as possible and as much as appropriate in the situation and let that be your guide. It's not easy. It is not easy. And even now I still find my, I catch myself. I feel like a bit of a heart skip when I share something or people say you're at a party or a gathering or a school event and it's the whole, oh, what do you do? I say, I'm an addiction relationship coach. And it's like, Ugh. people we say you're an accountant. Oh yeah, that's all good. No thing. And then you say you're an addiction relationship coach and you help support women that have been impacted by their partner's addiction. And then the next question, how did you get into that? And well, I've got a lived experience. And it's like <laughs> silence. It's a skip. It's a heartbeat skip and it gets easier. And like you said, the more language we put to it ourselves, and I speak about my husband and my children's dad, he's a good person. He's a good person. And like you said, he's got amazing qualities. He does. This is not who he is. And going back to language, addict. And people use that term, and I will put my hand up. I used to use it about four or five years ago myself. Gross. I look back now and I read some of my content on Instagram um, and I've used that term, my addict husband. It's like, oh my gosh, that's I'm appalled at myself because I know better now. He is not that. That is not who he is. And I'm not the wife of an addict. I'm a wife. I'm a mum. I'm a professional. I'm a friend. I'm a at the school. I'm a volunteer. This is not who we are. So changing the language around that. And this is not your story. So if people are listening and they feel on their knees with this and feel like it's going to last, this is going to be their situation forever. It doesn't have to be. This is not who you are. This is a sentence in your story, a chapter, a paragraph. This is not the whole book. You are more than this. And if you feel lost, go back to your values and let that be your guide. As to the way to get through this
0: and feel better in yourself. I love that. Yeah, this is not who they are and it's not who you are. For me, I really, I think I've thought a lot about like what made me take advice that didn't sit well with me and it was fear, right? Mm-hmm. So there was the shame of, you know, there's the stigma that belief system, and then the shame that comes from that, that it must be my fault, I must have done something wrong, which then leads to a lack of trust in me, because how can I trust myself if this is happening in my family, I can't be trusted, and then, so I'm afraid to listen to myself, and then I'm taking advice that doesn't make sense to me, doesn't Mm -hmm. feel right to me, feels absolutely awful as I'm carrying it out, it's actually making me feel worse. It's pushing my daughter away from me, pushing her even more into her substance use, making her run away, all these other things. But because I can't trust myself and I haven't actually stopped to really look inside of myself and question everything that's happening, I'm just this forward-moving machine trying to fix everything, then that's what really pushed me away from my values. And in order to get back in touch with them, I had to stop. And stopping felt really wrong too. But it was was the beginning. And I say stop, like stopping forcing everything, stopping going to all these doctors every week and just like giving us both a break. And that in that blank space, you know, where it felt like I was giving up, but I finally created some space where I could look inside of myself and course correct mm. and start to find help that actually did align with my values, get in touch with them, learn to start trusting myself again. And going outside of myself, like getting information from other people, but then checking in with myself first. So using discernment yes. on the information that I was gathering, if it felt right with me. And it was like, kind of like following this trail of breadcrumbs to figure all of this out. But in the end, what it led to was me being trustworthy myself, predictable, consistent. Because like you said, that North Star, like then when you're following that, then you are always on the right course. Mm -hmm. And that's really what changed things for me. It changed my experience. It changed my daughter's experience. That's why she started responding well to me because she felt loved and seen and heard and accepted all of those things that she needed from me for so long. And it's just interesting how fear can really come between us and our values. But it all it's all this vicious cycle to me of stigma, shame, fear, leaving your values. And that's why I think this was such a great topic choice for us today, because it doesn't matter who your loved one is. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's people that are listening to this that have Different relationships, not just kids, not just spouses, all kinds of loved Mm. ones dealing with substance use of some sort. So we, and we all experience these very similar situations. So I think that this will be so helpful for anybody in any situation because it's like it's universal. It's kind of like, Almost like this, you know how when you run a computer program, there's a script that starts running when you push a button and it's like kind of like when we all come in contact with addiction in our lives, like we all start running the same programs in our brain and reacting similarly. Uh, Totally. And just what you said there on the fear, so much is led by
1: fear and it's the lack of trust with ourselves that we know because we haven't known and then we just want someone, give me what, tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. Tell me what to do, I will do it. I will do anything. Tell me what to do. And then so we look to professionals to give us the best advice because they are the professionals. They are qualified, they are experts, they have the expertise that we are seeking. Amazing. Tell me what to do. And what I say to a lot of people is one of the biggest casualties of addiction from our perspective is our loss of trust with ourselves. Not always with our partner or our loved one, because yes, we can lose trust with them because of all the lying and we know why they lie, the shame, but loss of trust with ourselves. So we look to others and not even professionals sometimes, people in our circle. And we let those words, those thoughts, opinions of others be louder than our own and the kindest thing we can do for ourselves and our loved ones is tune back in like you just said does this sit with how does this sit with me and not everything that works for other people is going to work for you because it doesn't align to your values it doesn't align to what is okay with you and you and I have spoken about this Only you have to go to bed with the decisions that you have made that day. Nobody else, not the professionals, not the friends, not the family. Only you need to go to bed each night with the decisions that you've made. So if you can go to bed with the choices and decisions you've made that day, then they were the right decisions to make that day. And the more we can lean in and trust in ourselves, the more we're getting to that North Star. Yeah.
0: I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much for your time today and sharing your experience and all that you've learned. How do people get a hold of you or find you if they want to find out more about you? And I'll put it in the show notes too.
1: So I am on Instagram at addictionmakes3 and my website www.addictionmakes3.com or you can send me an email at amanda at addictionmakes3.com.
0: All right. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Heather.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about my work, go to heatherrosscoaching.com. If you want to help other parents who are struggling with a child's addiction, you can do it two different ways. First, you can share the podcast with them directly, or you can share it on your social media. Second, you can leave a review.